Rays Radio Network proudly presents This Week in Rays Baseball. Drilled to center field and deep. Back on it is Eaton. To the track. To the wall. It's gone! Kevin Longoria with a two-run home run to straightaway center. And he gives the Rays a 6-4 lead here in the ninth. Coming up, we'll recap the action from this past week, take a look around Major League Baseball, and sit down for in-depth interviews with the biggest names in the game. The 2-2 now. Check swing on the slider. Strike three. Chris Archer jumps off the mound and bounces his way to the dugout. Here's your host, Neil Solons. Hi, everybody. Good morning. Welcome to our show today from the Guy Harvey Outpost of Tradewinds Island Resorts on St. Pete Beach. This week, you're going to hear from Mikey Bontook about his recent return to the majors. We'll visit with the top two Rays picks from last year, 12 months after being selected. We'll preview the upcoming draft with the Rays' Rob Metzler, get some national perspective from Jonathan Mayo of MLB Network, and we'll also share stories of Don Zimmer as yesterday marked two years since his passing. We continue on this week in race baseball, and our feature guest this week is Mikey Matuk. And Mikey, certainly, it's good to have you back on the big league roster. We're closing in on draft day, so I wanted to know what your best recollections of that are. Man, draft day was um, that was my first experience, and uh, I guess in the professional baseball world. So, <clears throat> you know, you hear a bunch of things, you know, when you're playing, and you know, once season kind of winds down and leading up to the draft, and it's. It's nerve-wracking and exciting at the same time, and you know you don't really know where you're going to go. You have an idea, um, and hopes and and things that um, you know that your agents and everybody, you know, scouts t- tell you, but you really don't know. And so, um, you know, to go through it and, and be able to get picked in the you know first round was a, was an unbelievable experience for me. So these guys going through the draft are going to have uh, life-changing experiences. So I'm excited for them. What do you remember from a family perspective? The moment it was called, all, all that kind of stuff. Well, if you know me uh, and my family, you know that I have an enormous family. So I had, I don't know, I told my mom that I wanted to have a small get-together with family and friends, and the small ended up being like 60 people at my house. Basically, just family and close personal friends of ours. And uh, so we we were there, and, you know, we were all huddled around. And, um, you know, so when I got that, got the name came up and popped up on MLB Network, and I got a phone call from the team, it was... It was exciting to be able to share it with, you know, people that, I, that, that mean so much to me and that have been close to me through my life. Having gone through it, what advice do you give to people who are about to go through this for hopefully the first and only time? Um, I think the best thing I can say is um, enjoy the process. Don't get caught up in where you get drafted. Don't get caught up in signing bonuses and don't get caught up in, um, you know, someone got picked higher than me or, or lower than me or, or whatever. It's I think you just need to enjoy the process and, and realize that you get the opportunity to play professional baseball and you're one step closer to your dream of, of being a professional baseball player. So, um, you know, it's tough. Obviously, every as a competitor and a baseball player, you want to get drafted as high as you possibly can. But at the end of the day, once you get that opportunity, you know, make the most of it and take advantage of it and get to the big leagues as quickly as you can. It's easier to say it than do it. Enjoy Absolutely. the process. How hard was it for you as you moved up? Um, it's tough, you know. Like I said, it's the human nature um, to look ahead and and to see, you know, what else I have to do to move up. And you know, as competitors, you want to be in the big leagues, and you want to be in the big leagues now, and you're ready to go. Um, but in reality, everybody's on a different time frame. Um, some people are ready at 19. Some people are ready at 26. And it's just one of those things where you just have to, you know, wait your turn. You go through ups and downs and experiences, and and uh, you know, you just, you like I said, enjoy the process. It's it's harder. 
it's harder said than done. It's easier now me looking back on it and saying, you know what, that is the best way to go about it. But that's that's probably my the best the biggest advice I can give someone. Mikey Matuk with us on this week in Rays baseball. And last September you hit better than 350 and had six homers, your best month at the major league level. What did it do for you? Um, I think what it really what it did was just validate you know everything that I knew about myself um I was to have success in in the big leagues and have that type of success I think what it did was it it showed me hey I don't just believe that I can do it I know that I can do it you know I proved to myself I proved to everybody that I've I can do it and I belong here and um you know my confidence had never wavered I knew that I was I belonged here I knew that I was able to play here and I was going to play well but to actually do that and have a month like that ending the season and and to kind of go in the offseason with that type of um you know, high and that type of uh, momentum, it was a was a huge thing for me. And I think, you know, all it did was just increase my confidence and and made me a lot more comfortable in, in the situation that I'm in. You came back here for obviously uh, reasons you didn't want to come back, the KK injury. But is it? I remember after that September month, you said one of the big things was you weren't going to be sent down. How much did that also play into comfort level? And does it factor in here? Because look, you know, you're going to be here probably for the two months that KK's out. Um, it helps a little bit, you know, obviously you, you would assume you don't really know for, especially now I knew in September I was up the whole month here. You, you assume that I'm I'm going to be up here for an extended period of time, but you want to treat every day like it's, you know, your last day here and you want to, you know, play every day, every day hard. You want to play the game hard. You want to play the game right. You want to help your team win as much as possible. So that's, that's my focus. And that's kind of what I'm going, going with. I'm trying to. Um, you know, go out there and play the game that I know that I can play and play well and help our, help us win games. And then when KK comes back, hopefully I, I play well enough to where when he comes back, I just slide over and, and we play together on the outfield like we, we did, you know, so much coming up in the minor leagues together. In that best stretch that you had, was there a moment or moments that stick out as most memorable to you so far at the big league level? Um, I mean, just really that whole month was, was pretty uh, surreal to me. It, it you know, I got, I felt good. I got hot. I got opportunities, and I just kind of kept rolling with it. I think if I had to pick one thing, um, it probably had to be the five for five game against the Orioles. I mean, I had never gone five for five. Well, I guess I'd gone one time in my career. This was 2014 in AAA. So, going five for five in a game is is cool, and, and doing it here was even better. And then um, the last series against Toronto, when I hit a couple home runs in the series, I think those two things stick out the most to me. What impresses uh, me about you is the fact that before you even stepped on a big league diamond, you already had set up a foundation. Why the decision to do that as early as you did, and how important is your foundation to you? Well, it was the foundation was kind of a work in progress ever since I got to LSU as a freshman. Um, me and my mom had had talked about you know starting a foundation, doing something to give back. We just didn't know exactly what we wanted to do. You know, it was just an idea. And over time, the idea turned evolved into um, the idea that we had evolved into just exactly what it is now. We we found out that you know this is the best way to do it. Heart, it was, the foundation is inspired by my dad, who passed away when I was four from cardiomyopathy, which is a heart disease. And what the foundation does is it's, it brings awareness and education to um, to everyone about heart disease and the dangers of heart disease. And if you're an athlete. And, you know, you're a professional athlete, you're a collegiate athlete, you go through all these tests and screens um, so they they can catch these things. But it's 
what I wanted to do is I wanted to broaden the horizon. I wanted to explain to people that aren't professional athletes or college athletes that are athletic and and active that it could affect them as well. And so I want to bring I wanted to bring um, give them as much information on heart disease and how to prevent it and the education of it as as possible so that I can hopefully pre- prevent a family from going through something that I went through. You raised in this off season over a hundred thousand dollars. How proud were you of that? Man, it was one of the most humbling experiences I've ever I've ever been through. Um it was my first big event. Um and I just you don't know what to expect. You know, I was hoping that I'd get a good turnout and it was in Baton Rouge, so I just assumed that I you know, it would turn out well, but I didn't expect it to do that. And um, you know, the feedback that I got from the event and, you know, people reaching out to me wanting to help and, and, you know, giving me as much information, educating me on, you know, the science behind heart disease and everything has been amazing. And so it's, I can't even put into words how, how happy and proud I am of, of you know, the foundation of, of everyone that's going into uh, helping it. And it's something that I can't wait to see how, how big it can grow. Race fans may be listening or watching. So if they want to help out or get involved in some way, is there an easy way to do it? Yeah, if you want to get, if you want to help out, um, matzikfoundation.org is the website. Um, they have information there on on upcoming events, on um, you know, more information on why the foundation was started, on me, my family, um, and there's you know there's a donation page on there that you know if, if you if you're willing to donate, um, awesome. If not, please spread the word and get it out there because it's relatively new, and I'm just I'm looking forward to to growing this thing and, and helping as many people as I possibly can. I think most people who follow you know that you do honor your dad mm-hmm. uh, on the baseball field. You write the his number that he played football at LSU on on your cleats. What I was surprised at, he wore fifty four. You wear twenty seven, but there's yeah. no connection whatsoever. So there's no connection. There is a connection, but it's it wasn't by it was by accident. I feel like that's a, a sign by from him to you know whatever. So I get up here, and I they they're trying to give me a number. Um, this was last year in spring training. They gave me one number. Uh, can't use that. Someone wants to come in who has more time gets that number. So 27 was the third number that they offered me. So I was like, yeah, 27 is fine. That's, that's great. So we used, I used 27. I used 27. And then somebody in my family was like, oh, my God, it's so awesome that you picked 27 because your dad's number was 54. You're a junior. 27 is half of 54. And so I was like, okay. So it does have a connection. So it just coincidentally turns into – you know, an accident of a meaningful number now. So it's it's something that, you know, I, I think that's pretty cool. And it's it was a complete accident, but I think that there's a little bit more meaning behind that, getting that number than, than meets the eye. And I guess you're going to keep that from here going forward? I will keep that as long as, as, long as, I'm, as, long as I'm here and I'm able to keep 27, I'll, I'll keep 27. Your dad, as we mentioned, was a football player. Right. Is there any football player in you, do you think? And how does it impact the way you play on the, the baseball field? Absolutely, um, I would say there is football player in me. I grew up a, a baseball just kind of happened. I grew up a football guy. Um, my uncles, my my dad's brother, my my godfather played football at LSU. His other brother played football at you know, University of Louisiana Lafayette. <clears throat> so nobody really played baseball. So I grew up as in the football family, in the football world, and baseball just kind of evolved and happened. And so I think that um, I, I take a lot of the energy and the way I play. Um, in baseball, I take that from from my football experience. In terms of 
your family, mm -hmm. obviously we've touched on that, your mom also beat cancer. So right. when you hear the word family, what does family mean to you? Um, family is is everything to me. It's it's something that, you know, we've been through a lot together. My mom, my mom raised three kids. I was four. My twin, identical twin sisters were two when she was 27 years old. She had three kids, and she raised us all by herself. She had help from, from uncles and aunts, but she did most of the heavy lifting. And, um, you know, and then she, she goes my, my junior year or my sophomore year in college, she beats breast cancer. And it's to go through what we've gone through and to be, to be closer than we ever have before, it, it's, it's something that I hold real close to me and, and, you know, dear to my heart. And I think that I wouldn't be the person I am today if I didn't go through those struggles. Um, and, I, and I'm a firm believer of everything happens for a reason. So I, I wouldn't be who I am and where I am, I think, if, if I didn't have to go through that. And I think that, you know, I'm in, I'm in a good place um, because of it. In this game, you're going to go through 0 for 10s, 1 right. for 20s. Do you think all that you've gone through in your family makes it easier for you to handle that? Oh, absolutely. I think it's, um, it, puts, it puts things in perspective for you. Um, you know, baseball is my job, but it's also a game. And at the end of the day, if I can say I can go home to a family who loves me and to, you know, a support staff that you know supports me through thick and thin, I think that that goes a long way. And I think that that's that says more about, um, you know, our family and our bond than, you know, any home run or or defensive play you can make in the outfield. So um, it's something that I'll always play hard and I'll always, you know, commit 100 percent to baseball. I love it. It's it's what I love to do, but it's also not who I am. It's just something that I was been blessed to, to be good at. That said, though, I know what kind of competitor you are. If we're sitting down five years from now, what do you want to be said about your career on the field? Well, five years from now, hopefully I'm still here and made a couple all-star teams and, and helping us win you know, some World Series. But uh, you know, in five years, I'd, I'd love for, for people to say that I play the game the right way. Um, I'm an unbelievable teammate. And uh, you know, obviously, talent aside, it, he's, just, he's a great person to be around. And He's a, he has an infectious personality, and he's just someone that you want to have on your team. Well, best of luck in achieving all that. I think you've achieved a whole lot more already off the field than most do in their entire careers. Continued success. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. That's Mikey Matuk joining us on This Week in Rays Baseball. We continue right after this on the Rays Baseball Network. Welcome back to This Week in Race Baseball. I'm Neil Solons. As we discussed with Mikey Matuk, the draft starts Thursday. Joining me now is the person who heads up the draft room, Director of Amateur Scouting, Rob Metzler. Rob, this is your first draft in that role since taking over for R.J. Harrison. So what has the last year been like for you? It's gone very quickly. It's gone very quickly. In many, many days have been very similar to the role in R.J.'s, you know, as, as RJ's right-hand man, we, we have a good team you know, of, of scouts, good team of front office members who are all taking on this project together. So there have been many days where it's just another day in the scouting department, but then you know, there are more decisions, more, de you know, are we going to stay on this player? Are we going to get off this player? Are we going to scout this player more? That, you know, it, it has been a change being the, being the final voice in, the, in that decision. And it certainly be, be, you know, running the meetings as opposed to being the wingman in the meetings will be, be quite different as well. So, and, and, but we're excited. We have a good team in place to take on the challenge. In the last year, then, do you see more players in person that you may have before? What types of things are you doing differently now than maybe you did in the year prior to last year's draft? I've been out a little bit more, you know, and certainly across the country more. I, I was able to. 
I, w- I would be a little bit more tied to the office previously, and, and, and this year I've been around the country a little bit more. In, in the past, I might might cherry pick some some good games, and but but there was more timing to the office in terms of coordinating the whole department. But we we have a good crew in there now, so it's allowed me to be a little bit more free, a little bit more spend more time in the field with our people. What's let's say different about the office or the department in terms of amateur scouting? Do you have more scouts, less scouts, spread in different areas? Are you doing anything differently that you'd want to disclose in terms of how you're preparing for this year's draft? Not, nothing tangibly different. I mean, I have a different background, a different perspective than RJ. My, my I've been taught in the game by RJ's been as big a mentor as I've had. He, he's been a huge influence on me, but I have a different background and I'm sure in lots of different ways it plays out throughout the department where small decisions medium decisions but in general as as a large scope you know we're about balancing perspectives between between you know what our people see in the field and, and between what what we can learn analytically through the history of the draft to, to try and set the odds in our favor as much as possible in terms of specific differences nothing that i'd want to touch and we're 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 up a man or two from where we were last year, which is we're, we're incredibly fortunate that, that we have the opportunity to have as robust a scouting department as we can. And, and I think it's allowed us to have as good as coverage as possible. What is a good draft? You know, we always debate, OK, you want to have a successful draft. And we know with the Rays being uh, a smaller revenue team, the draft is vital. But how do you value what a good draft is? It's a very complex question, but to boil it down, we'd like to have as accurate a draft board as possible. We to to judge, we will, you know, I, as I like to say, I, I want to have a great process and I want to have great results. You you can't look, you can't completely set, separate them. You can't completely look at the results, you know, in isolation. Just because we could have had the most accurate board in baseball and just plays out in a way where where the players we end up taking don't might maybe not re- reach the the levels that they could and it doesn't play out perfectly for us and other years you know could have not as good a process and the results could be better but we believe over time that if we have a great process we're going to have great results as well but there's certainly you know accountability so to you know we wouldn't say hey you have to have x amount of big leaguers to have a good draft it's just it's it's too complex a question in my opinion and when do you think you can judge a draft fairly? Is it three years, five years after the fact? When can you say, look back at it and say, and and how do you look back at it and say whether it's been good, bad, or indifferent? You look in a broad sense to see, you know, how those players are progressing, see what kind of, you know, value they have, in your, whether it's in their system or hopefully three to five years out, you know, have some big league value and start start peeking their way into the big league roster. That That's certain, that's a way we would do it. But we don't, you know, and those are good benchmarks, Neil, you know, three, three to five years, you start to see how, how guys are progressing, depending on the composition of your draft class. We don't, we're not going to find much out about the high school player, the 17 and 18 and 19 year olds that we take for two or three years. You know, it takes that much time to develop as a player. Uh, you know, college players will, you know, I think also deserve two or three years to really get their feet on the ground. It's a very different challenge that they're taking on as they make the transition from amateur baseball to professional baseball. So to, you know, three to five years is a is a good benchmark. Uh, but again, there's there's just a lot of context to, to all of these evaluations. Chatting with Rob Metzler, director of amateur scouting for the Rays. And Rob, this year's draft, how would you classify it? 
Is it stronger? And it seems like the experts have said it's strong, at least at the top, in high school pitching. Is that a fair assessment this year? I think it's strong in all four quadrants. I, I think there are some really talented high school pitchers. There's some really talented high school position players. The, you know, there, there's a good group of college pitchers, and, and there's some excellent college position players. So I'll get ahead of you. Yeah, I couldn't handicap now. You know, we're, we're it, it's you know, I, I think there is. I think it's been written, and it's it's fair to say there's some uncertainty at the top of the draft, and I, we're preparing for that to trickle down into our pick where we're preparing for all scenarios to of, of what might what might happen and, and who might be available and we're going to look at it from all angles and you're in a similar position to where you were last year it's the 13th pick again the only difference maybe is that you have an extra pick in the top 100 you've got four of the top 100 do you guys actually set a board that values guys all the way down to 100 or further than that on an annual basis and in, in terms of figuring out your draft board yeah yeah, we, we will we will line up players. You know, I, I couldn't tell you if we're going to line them up. You know, at some point the margins between the players just become so small that they would be more in groupings and then in specific. You know, ninety nine, one hundred, one hundred and one. But down through you know through certainly the first five or six rounds, we will have those guys prepped out one through however many that is. And I guess uh, the the question that you know I think about when you're going through this process, the Rays the last few years, even though they're in uh, a an organization known for pitching and defense have drafted position players with their first pick. Um, Garrett Whitley last year, you go back to uh, Nick Schufo, um, Casey Gillespie, uh, Richie Schaefer. Um, is that basically based on where they fell on the board and going forward, if the organization feels there is a need and the players are equal, do you look at one position player versus pitcher? How's that determined? We don't have a preference. We just, we have. You know, we look at it from all angles, and whoever we think is the best player, best prospect available, who's going to add the most value to the organization and have eventually the most impact on the major league roster. So, in those past four four drafts, our first pick has ended up being a, being a position player. I couldn't set the odd. You know, there's no organizational mandate that we we will take a position player or a pitcher in the first round. We will take the prospect we think is the best fit and then the most valuable prospect to the organization and the challenges i guess with a draft when you're taking i mean 13 is a reasonable pick but it's certainly not like a top five where you certainly have a better gauge how hard is it to to project out with a kid when you once you get below the first couple it's very challenging I, i think it's very challenging in in the draft is an incredible challenge it's incredibly fun it's but you better be ready to you're going to know that you're going to make mistakes and then you want to have a good process so you make as few mistakes as possible but you have to be aware that there are going to be you're not going to you're not going to roll a perfect game it's just it's just not going to happen uh so to to ask about the 13th pick you know i i think there's challenges picking in every spot in the draft certainly the more things have to happen for somebody at that selection to you know more development has to take place for that that type of player typically to progress on to you know to big league roster not always I mean I don't know how much I think Chris Sale was the 13th pick in 2010 and that pretty that happened pretty fast so sometimes those opportunities are available but other other years you know other years you know the type of player might be quite talented just the player at the in the top three four or five might just have less hurdles to overcome before they reach big league value Hopefully 13 is a lucky number for the race this year. Rob, we appreciate a few minutes on this week in race baseball. Thanks, Neil. Appreciate it.
That's Rob Metzler, who now oversees the draft for the Rays. Let's pause for station identification. This is the Rays Baseball Network. This is Tampa Bay Sports Radio. This one's on its way. And gone. 620 WDAE St. Petersburg and 95.3 FM. Home of the Rays. Neil Solon's with you on this week in Rays Baseball from the Guy Harvey Outpost of Tradewinds Island Resorts on St. Pete Beach. Staying with the draft, I spoke with the Rays' first two picks from last year this past week in Port Charlotte. Garrett Whitley was the Rays' first selection last year, and we discussed how he's doing in extended spring training and if it's felt like a full year since draft day. In certain ways it has. In certain ways it really doesn't. I mean, I'll think back to this time last year. I was in high school, and it really couldn't feel any further away you know it's so much has happened and so much is different now I feel like I've been away from that for forever but at the same time I can think back to the draft and it seems like that was yesterday what do you remember about draft day thinking back on it and and uh, what have you learned about yourself in the last year um I mean it was just a lot of excitement you know uh, a lot of anticipation um obviously I got to go to the draft so that was a great experience for me and my family and um you know, I've learned a lot of things since it. Learned uh, about myself as a baseball player. Learned about my body, um, how to take care of myself for a long season, and um, all kinds of things. I think I just grew up a little bit. How have you grown physically? Um, you look like you've you know put on a little strength, a little muscle. Yeah, I put on I put on a little weight. Um, I have you know really good strength and conditioning guys here and athletic trainers so they're teaching me about how to take care of my body how my body should work um all sorts of things you know just to make me a better overall athlete you also have learned i guess about trying to stay healthy you did have a little bit of a hamstring issue during extended spring training here how did it happen and how are you feeling right now just having playing just running um you know it uh then try to come back from it and kind of happened again um but I'm feeling good now. Uh, you know, I learned a lot about how to take care of myself. My morning routine's a lot longer now. But um, you know, as long as I feel good when I get out on the field, that's the important part. Is that kind of a it, good to learn that kind of learning lesson uh, this early on in your professional career? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, to now know about my body more, um, I can take that with me through the rest of my career. I don't have to learn it in five years when something eventually happens. You know, I have that base now and then. Any adjustments I need to make as I get older, it'll be easier to make. We always hear about how good the race training staff is, so you got to learn kind of firsthand. What made them good in your mind? Um, I mean, they really care about us, and they talk to you. They they ask me a lot of questions about how I'm feeling, how, how does uh, this treatment make me feel different from this treatment, um, and they're just really working to get me back out on the field. From a baseball standpoint, you probably learned some things playing in the Gulf Coast League last year and a little bit in Hudson Valley. What did you learn baseball-wise, and where do you think you've grown the most on the field? Um, I think I've grown a lot just overall as a ball player. Um, I mean, really, I'm just feeling a lot more comfortable at this level now. You know, um, it was a big adjustment coming from high school last year, but now I feel, you know, in the box, I feel more comfortable facing the velo and the better curveballs and change-ups. And in the outfield, um, you know, keeping up with the more aggressive base running and the, the harder hit balls, all, all sorts of stuff. Um, I've just, I've really, I think, improved a lot as a player. Some would say that the game, once you get more comfortable uh, in terms of the speed of the game, it slows down 
Is that a fair way to look at it from your standpoint? Yeah, for sure. For sure. What types of things have slowed down the most for you? Um, well, like I mentioned, uh, in the box, just, you know, the pitching seemed real fast those first couple of weeks last year. Um, but now it's, it's normal again. Um, playing balls off the bat, hit my cuts, um, knowing how runners are going to be running the bases when I'm in the outfield and how I need to play balls based on that. Um, it was, a, it was a lot at the beginning of my career. Um, and now it's, I don't know, it's just, it comes more easily, you know? Where do you want to be, let's say, by the end of this year? Maybe not in terms of level of what, you know, what team you're playing with, but what do you hope to accomplish during the course of this season to kind of take your game up another step forward? You know, I mean, I just want to keep improving. Um, I know I still have a lot of work to do in every aspect of my game. Um, I feel like I've made a lot of strides towards that, and I just want to, want to keep on that path. And that's last year's first-round pick, Gary Whitley. Now, the Rays' second pick was to be taken in the first round, but questions about his health changed that. Chris Betts started playing games in extended spring training this year after last season undergoing Tommy John surgery. It definitely feels like it's been a year. It's been a long time, um, lots of rehab, lots of being away from home, new state, new place, new people. So it's been a while, but the draft was interesting the whole way through, but when I got picked, I was really happy and couldn't wait to get out here and been loving every minute of it before we get to your health what have you learned about yourself over the course of the past year that you think is going to help you a bit going forward um I think I think living on my own for a whole year away from home doing things on my own every day being out here in the off season when not a whole lot of people are out here has been big just learning how to do day-to-day things and not worry about being being away from home or you know, the struggles of rehab or not being able to do what you want every day. So I've kind of adjusted to letting things happen and fall into place and just doing everything I can to make it better. Now, for fans who didn't follow your story, you had Tommy John surgery uh, right around after you signed or right around the time you signed with the Rays. Where are you in your rehab process and what are you doing now in extended spring training? Right now I'm DHing. Uh, four or five days a week, getting all my at-bats, getting, trying to get my timing back, swinging a little bit, and then uh, hopefully in the next three or four weeks I'm catching in games and starting that rehab progression. How does it feel now? What are you doing in terms of blocking, throwing, and, and how's that gone? Uh, as far as catching and playing, I'm a normal player except for I don't catch in games. So I do all the blocking drills, all the catching drills. Um, my throwing progression goes on five days a week now, and so... It's just starting to work my way back into being a normal player instead of a rehab guy. How does it feel? Uh, great. I'm happier than ever. It's been a long time coming. It's been too long. How about the time missed at the plate? Because I, I think, you know, uh, when you were drafted, a lot of people said, you know, one of the things that really projects is, is how well you swing the bat, especially for a catcher. Um, what was it like timing-wise to miss all that time playing baseball? Uh, it was tough considering that, I hadn't missed more than two, three weeks of baseball ever in my whole career. So that was an experience. I struggled a lot at the beginning, and I'm still I'm still scuffling a little bit now, but everything's starting to click back in place, and I wasn't unrealistic with myself and expecting to come back full bore. So kind of accepted it and battled through it and still going. Extended spring training, um, you don't know quite where you're going to end up, whether it's Gulf Coast, whether it's Princeton, whether it's Hudson Valley. 
but you are facing probably better pitchers than you faced in your high school career. How big has the difference been? Uh, it's it's a big difference, but once you once you start seeing it every day, it just it just becomes the new normal, and you learn to adjust and you learn to be a better hitter, and kind of just makes things easier going out and seeing consistent competition. How and who's been maybe most helpful um, as you've tried to adapt? Um, because you've got a lot of coaches out here. You also have a lot of guys who are rehabbing too, whether they're higher level guys, major league guys, minor league guys, that are trying to come back from injury as well. I mean, every everyone here has the same goal. I mean, we all want to we want to play at the highest level, and I think in this organization, all the coaches and all the players do a really good job of just kind of meshing together, and so everyone kind of builds off each other. And there's really no one no one in particular, but everyone has really been helpful in that process of getting back and kind of helped me work around struggles and get me through stuff, and so it's been good. How about the training staff? They have obviously a terrific reputation as an organization for getting guys back on their feet. They've been incredible. Obviously, they're the reason why I'm in a full uniform right now and not back in the training room, so I can't thank them enough, and they've been really good with me all off season and all season, and they take th- they take things really cautiously and, you know, they make sure we're healthy before we go out and do what we do. As you get set to begin your professional playing career, what do you hope to accomplish, let's say, by the end of August, early September, when you complete wherever your that short season play is? I mean, I don't really have a level that I have a goal to be at because I don't want to set myself up for failure. I just want to go out there and be able to play every day and mainly just be healthy. I want to end the year healthy, have a full off season of, you know, working out and getting ready for the season and just give myself the best opportunity to succeed come next spring training and compete. And that's Chris Betts, the race second pick last year. Now for some national perspective on this year's draft, joining us from MLB Network and MLB.com, Jonathan Mayo. Jonathan, thanks for a few minutes. Always a pleasure to talk with you, Neil. Let's uh, start with the strength of the draft at the top. You know, I've read a lot of your work. I mean, do you think it's high school pitching? If not, then where is it with this group? Yeah, it's definitely high school pitching. Uh, I think we it's uh, seven of the top 16 in the, in the top 200. We just recently launched our high school pitchers, and that, of course, makes it for uh, you know an even more interesting and volatile draft than usual because high school pitching is the, the biggest risk-reward uh, exercise there is in the draft. And you know some teams just don't want to go down that road, and you know invariably what happens is you know high school guys are, are ranked high or, or mentioned highly in the first round, and then it's time for, to make your decisions and. Uh, people get a little gun shy, or they, you know, they they don't want to have to wait that long. Whatever the reasons is, so some of that high school pitching will drop down a little bit, you know, much to the benefit of teams picking a little bit later in the first round or, or beyond. Uh, and some of the college, uh, you know, college arms who may maybe aren't uh, uh, quite as sexy in terms of their prospect status uh, go a little bit sooner. And you wrote a pretty good column on that this week. I thought that I'm hoping our fans will take a look at in terms of the success rate. As you went through the research on that, what was the main finding to you and what was most surprising? You know, I I think I just, I expected there to be a little bit more success because what I did for that that article, and thanks for reading, by the way, Mm -hmm. um, I can count you and my mom. (laughs) Um, But uh, I think the, you know, we just looked at the top 10 from every draft. Uh, Now, keep in mind that, you know, there's a certain issue, I think, research-wise, looking at the draft from 1965-66 and the drafts from the last couple of years, because it's just a different animal now. Mm-hmm. But by and large, uh, I think I expected there to be 
uh, a little bit more success in terms of like real stars uh, to come out of the out of the top ten, um, and that didn't happen. Um, you know, I think it was thirty eight out of the hundred, you know, never made it or haven't made it to the to the big leagues. Um, you know, obviously there's still guys in the minors waiting and, and, and things of that nature. Um, it just shows you again the volatility of high school pitching. Sometimes the guys that didn't go in the first round, uh, maybe they were more projectable. More recently, they slid down and signed later on. Uh, those some of those guys are the ones who have been you know the the most successful. You know, uh, you know Greg Maddox and Tom Glavin signed out of high school, but they, neither one of them were first round picks. Mm-hmm. And, and and that said, I mean, the Rays are picking at number 13, and it's very, very difficult, I think, even to say securely that this is who's going to be the number one guy or that there is a, a standout number one this year. So what group of guys do you think they're going to have to choose from when it gets down to number 13? They have kind of the pick of the litter, Neil. In some ways, this is a good year to be around where they're picking. Now, it's not a good year for them to figure out who's going to be there. So preparing for the draft – uh, was probably not so easy, uh, just in terms of the amount of guys that they had to know enough about uh, for various permutations. It's not like there were 12 guys that you say, this is the top 12. I think there's 10 guys that seemed like they were going to be the, the top 10 uh, in whatever order. But, you know, of course, as we get closer to the draft and uh, more digging is done, uh, guys rise and fall, so now maybe a couple guys are trickling down. So, uh, you know, there's a chance that they could kind of choose whatever flavor they want. You know, they're you know one of the college bats that uh, looked like they was going to be gone could be there if they wanted to you know, go go back to 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 that route like they did a few years ago with Mikey Matuk and Richie Schaefer and guys like that. They could stay high school bats. There are actually you know a couple of really good ones that they could consider in and around there, like, you know, like they did last year. Now, some people think because Garrett Whitley struggled so much last summer uh, that they may shy away from that. Uh, there probably is going to be a college arm or two that, you know, uh, there's not, it's not a great college pitching class. Uh, so after you get past the top ten where there may only be one guy go, uh, an A.J. Puck from Florida, uh, they could have, uh, you know, the pick of the next best college arm if, if they decide to do that. So they could really go in any direction. Is there a guy that you are really high on that you think may fall to them right now? Well, I'm looking at uh, you know various mocks, and it's uh, you know all along I think there's been high school bats that I you know that been associated with them. Last time around, I said Dakota Hudson from Mississippi State, who had a stretch in the middle of the season where he really wasn't pitching well, so he sort of uh, I don't say he fell off the cliff, but he dropped quite a bit from a guy who was a de- seem like a, a definite top 10 guy. Now, he's righted the ship, so there's a chance that he could be gone, you know, by the time the race pick, but I think that he would be, you know, be of interest uh, uh because he's got good stuff. This isn't like a real bo- you know, he's more than just a a really boring college pitcher and aside from that little stretch, he actually was extremely effective this year. But then there are guys like uh, you know, Josh Lo- Joshua Lowe, he's the high school bat from mm-hmm. Uh, from Georgia that uh, a lot of us had kind of attached to the Rays. Uh, Alex Kirilov, uh, my neck of the woods in Pittsburgh, is a high school bat who's going to go right around there. You know, if they really want to roll the dice, uh, maybe a guy like Matt Manning is a high school pitcher, although there might be some signability issues there, so that may not work. 
but uh, you know, like I said, if there was going to be someone to drop to them, it could be a guy like Corey Ray. Uh, he was a college bat from Louisville. And then uh, Delvin Perez, the high school shortstop from Puerto Rico, uh, his stock is kind of up in the air right now. He seemed like a surefire top ten pick, but he may he may be sliding just a bit. Yeah, very toolsy kid uh, yep. as well. You know, how do you classify this draft overall? Obviously, high school pitching at the top. What's the depth overall to you? It's uh, it's still high school pitching. Uh, I mean, that's that's it. And it is a, it is a more uh, the strength of the draft is is its depth as opposed to high end guys. And the top of the draft isn't great. You know, if if they change the rules and you're allowed to trade draft picks, this would be a good year if you're picking at the drop at the top to maybe trade down. You know, to get extra picks because uh, I think you know you might find more value later on in the first round into the second round. Uh, some of these high school arms, because there are so many, will uh, will filter down to to that area. And I think you're going to see some very good players, uh, maybe guys who are a little bit more raw on the mound, uh, go you know in, into into that sandwich round and second round, who could end up being you know the the superstars that come out of this draft. And, and you know, last year the Rays were real happy to get Whitley at uh, number thirteen. They also were surprised that Chris Betts fell to them. What did you think last year on on day one of of what they were able to get? I, I like what they did. You know, this was a team that you know, granted they used to have to you know pick at the top of the draft all the time and you know hopefully you get that right but you know they got a little maybe a little too conservative with some of their drafts over the year i mean over the years i still think like casey Gillespie, i think is going to be a fine player but to me that didn't like scream you know the same with the the matuk and the richie schaefer uh, draft that, that did not scream to me what the rays had built their success on which was sort of uh, higher-end guys, uh, you know, using their fine player development system to let these guys develop. That's why, in the end, you know, like I don't think the fact that Whitley struggled last summer is going to necessarily dissuade them from, you know, from going the high school route because they know it was going to take time. Um, but I like that they were they were aggressive at the top uh, in terms of Whitley and Betts. They got two, you know, first-round talents. You know, in rounds one and two, you know, Betts obviously had the injury, and that's why he he dropped down. But that guy can really hit. You know, I think that uh, that might end up being a a really good draft steal when all is said and done. It'll be interesting to watch, and we'll certainly look forward to watching you on Thursday on MLB Network. Jonathan Mayo, thanks for joining us on This Week in Race Baseball. Thanks for having me, Neil. And again, that's Jonathan Mayo of MLB Network. Coming up, some thoughts on Don Zimmer after this on the Race Baseball Network. Welcome back to This Week in Rays Baseball. I'm Neil Solons. Yesterday marked two years since the passing of Don Zimmer. And to so many, he meant so much. To first base coach Rocco Baldelli, it still feels like he's with us. We obviously think about him uh, on a regular basis. We tell stories in the clubhouse, um, bring his name up. It's hard not to because uh, he was a big part of uh, a lot of our lives in this organization, and, uh, you know, we think about him all the time. Bench coach Tom Foley says he thinks about Zim every day. I mean, just the things that we do, and we're playing cards, obviously, on the plane, and uh, something's said or something's done, and boom, Zim's name comes up. We're in the locker room the other day. Was talking, we were talking, and uh, I think it was me and Sheltie, and then, and how he would, you would just kind of like egg him on to the point where, <laughs> you know, he's about ready to explode and then we all start laughing. So, yeah, there's there's moments during the course of, you know, just about every day that uh, if you're not thinking about him, his name comes up. 
as a bench coach, um, you know, Zim was such a bright man. Are there things that sometimes you'll think, hey, what would he do in this spot? Well, you know, Zim Zim had some ideas that sometimes we wouldn't think of doing. Uh, you know, hitting around with the bases loaded. Uh, he did that. He told us about that story. And uh, times when he was coaching third, and I think it was Billy Martin, and him got into an argument. Uh, just the funny stories that he tells. He has so many of them. Derek Shelton, the race hitting coach, says what he appreciated about Don Zimmer is that no matter what he said, you always learn from him. You know, he had strong beliefs on certain things, and he would stick to it, and Sometimes we'd sit in the coach's room and uh, he would really give it to you about uh, what his beliefs were. But I, I think the thing that sticks out the most is he never missed anything. You know, I would come up during, uh, during a game when we were on defense and he would ask you a question about something really specific. So the way his mind worked and the things that he saw were different than anybody I've ever been around. But more than the baseball knowledge, Zim was beloved by so many. Todd Callis of Fox Sports Sun says the time has passed by fast. I do remember uh, shortly after my dad passed in 2009, it seemed those first couple years really flew by. Um, but yeah, it does seem like it's gone by quickly. Uh, but you still think about Zim all the time in certain situations, whether they're here at the baseball stadium or on the charter flights or just in life in general, because... Uh, he made an impact on everybody he met. What are stories that come to mind personally for you that connect you with Zim? Um, well, a lot of them are, are baseball-related. Whenever I see a first and third situation in less than two outs, I think about Zim with, with that bunt play that worked so tremendously well through the years uh, that he kind of introduced through Joe Madden. Evan Longoria, who is as close to Zim as any player, and also thinks it's hard to believe it's been two years. At the same time, it, it does seem like... Um, He's been gone for quite some time just because he uh, was such a, a presence around here. You know, everybody, I, I mean, personally, obviously, I had a, a love for him um, and, and a respect for him like uh, um, a lot of guys um, maybe didn't because they didn't spend as much time with him. But, um, yeah, I, uh, I feel like it's been a long time just because I, I miss having him here every day. And what are the things you miss most? The stories, just hearing, just hearing his stories, and and uh, and him joking with the clubhouse guys, him him messing around with Cuz, um, you know, all of the things that uh, you came to expect from Zim on a daily basis. Whether it was uh, you know getting on Torian in the clubhouse for not picking him up uh, on time from his car, and and him having to walk in when it's ninety five degrees outside. Um, to uh, playing cribbage against him um, when uh, when I could get him to play a game with me, and uh, if I couldn't get him to play that, I knew he'd always play gin. So I was uh, I'd always just kind of wear the losses in gin because I he, I was never as good as him. Are there any stories specifically that that stick out to you? Ones that sometimes you either retell almost in his voice. Um, I the story that always sticks out in my mind to me is is. Uh, it, because we get to see it uh, time to time uh, on TV when they show uh, old highlights is the story of him uh, and the, the fight with Pedro Martinez because uh, every time we'd bring it up, he'd get so upset uh, you know, over it. And uh, I think sometimes we'd, we'd do it on purpose just to, uh, to get a reaction out of him, to get a rise out of him. For me, it was always just about how much passion he had in that moment, um, <laughs> knowing he was, you know, a, a 70-year-old man, you know, trying to go up against uh, 
uh, a, a much much younger guy but but him thinking he was uh he was going to take him was was um just to me I, it just made me love him that much more race vice president of communications rick vaughn recalls the first time spending a significant amount of time with zim uh, and we were on a flight to chicago and i was doing some work and he walked up to me on the plane and he was like so what's a guy like you do on a night off in Chicago? What do you do? And I said, uh, well, I'm probably just going to get room service and go to my my uh, room and get some work done. He goes, well, suppose you and I go out and have dinner tonight. So I was like, heck, yeah. I mean, I was excited about it. So, you know, we get to the hotel. We, we take this cab to this uh, place. And it was going to a pretty bad part of town. And the cab driver pulled up and said, here we are. And Zim was like, no, this isn't the right place. There's no way. This can't, this isn't it. And so he's kind of arguing with the guy and uh, using some other words <clears throat> along the way. And I, so I got out of the cab while he was talking to him. And I walked over and I looked in the uh, this little old tiny restaurant that was kind of at a blackened front so you couldn't see in. And there were like hundreds of people in this restaurant and it was the right place so I finally convinced him I said Zim I think this is it so we walk in the door and it was almost like it was a surprise party for Zim it wasn't but it was the reaction that he got when he walked into this place now he hadn't been there in a few years but uh the owner and everybody in the restaurant just went crazy when we walked in I mean it was like like I said it was like New Year's Eve or a birthday party and we sat down and we never even opened a menu they just kept bringing us food and bringing us food and it was uh, it was a great night for me, and I got to know him, start to get to know him, what blossomed into a great friendship, and to watch his whole reaction through the evening, going from really anger to the at the uh, cab driver to just the elation of uh, everybody in the restaurant that had for him and really adored him. Well said, because it really was hard not to admire or adore one Don Zimmer. Thanks to all our guests on that segment, as well as Mikey Mato, Chris Betts, Garrett Whitley. Rob Metzler, and Jonathan Mayo. And special thanks on our show to producer Trey Downey. Next week, we'll review this week's MLB Draft, chat with Chase Whitley and Johnny Venters, both coming back from Tommy John surgery. If there's something you'd like to hear on the show, you can just tweet me, at Neil Solon. Stay tuned. The pregame show is next. You're listening to the Race Baseball Network.